this is one of the challenges for government organizations like CEDA or USAID or DFID, that the government and the ministries of finance and the general public and media, they want to see results. And they want to see results from the Swedish or US or British money, whatever. And then you, you want to have your flag on things and be able to say, okay, we, we supported this and then this was the result. This is actually, in most cases, very difficult to do. And as you say, social changes, changing behavior, behavior changes take a long time. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Magnus Samenson. Magnus is currently the Senior Education Specialist at CEDA, the Swedish Governmental Agency for Development Corporation, and is based in Cambodia. He initially worked as a secondary school teacher and lecturer in Sweden before transitioning to work with the Swedish Ministry of Education. Magnus joined CEDA in 2003 and over the years has been serving as a senior education expert in the Nordic region, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Laos, and other areas. His work with CEDA Cambodia has focused on supporting the Ministry of Education, Youth, and Sport in providing quality assurance systems in learning and teaching, creating the first multi-donor trust fund to support capacity development at all levels of the education sector, supporting skills training programs, promoting private partner partnerships, and much more. Magnus is also very much involved in arts and culture in Cambodia and strongly believes in the necessity of supporting creativity and the arts as part of social and economic development. Magnus, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Sapa. Thank you. It's our pleasure. To begin with, maybe we could speak a bit about what sparked your interest in education in general and what motivated you to first work as a teacher for a few years, and then also what made you transition to the policy side and uh, join the Ministry of Education and later CEDA? That's a long time ago. But actually, I didn't aim to become a teacher. I aimed to become an artist and went to art school. And to be, being, being an artist, you don't earn so much money. So uh, I went to the part of the art school that was training art teachers. So that's how I started in that field. And then I became a teacher and I really liked being a teacher. I really liked being amongst young people and discuss things and uh, find out things together with young people. So moving from teaching art, I started to work a lot around use of computers and IT and ICT. So I was one of the first teachers in Sweden to actually work with computers in the classroom. So when that became a subject in Swedish schools, I was asked to move into the National Education Agency in Sweden to work on the first curricula 
in the use of ICT in education. Uh, and from that, I, I transitioned into other things. As you rightly said, I've been working in education for a very long time. And one of the things I realized in this period is that education can look very differently from the outside. But when it actually comes to the core of it, it's very simple in that sense. You have good teachers, you have good schools, you have good education. If the teacher is not good, the school will not be good, the education will be not be good. And from transitioning in from ICT into the National Education Agency, I was also asked then to move to Brussels to work with the European Corporation in education field. So this gradually organic kind of way of moving between different parts of the education system. And then I was asked to apply for this position at CEDA by people I knew that were working at CEDA knew me. So I got it and it was a very, very interesting step forward to start to work with policy um, in development. And as I said, there are many differences and many similarities. One difference is actually the money side. But in the West, in Europe in general, and not least in Sweden, the schools are really well equipped compared to here. And the teacher training is very different in the sense it's much longer, it's much cheaper, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to schooling, comes to the schools, there are so many similarities in that. You need teachers with dedication and teachers that are interested in the subject, but mostly are actually interested in the students. And that is independent on where you are in the world, actually, in what kind of school buildings you're working in, what kind of tools you have accessible. So that's the short story. It's very interesting that you also went from art to teaching, to the policy side, to the development side. Somewhere you had said that your motto in development cooperation work is, and I quote, we are not here to tell you what to do. We are here to support you in implementing the reforms you consider necessary. So in working in the development side, in the education sector, as your experience grew, could you speak to us about what you learned in terms of the approaches you felt were best to take or the attitude or the perspective or the lens to have when working with other countries, with partner organizations, in situations where there's a variety of different ideas or cultural practices or beliefs? And, you know, just about this motto that you have. Yeah, this is actually really one core of the issues around development cooperation. One of my colleagues who is passed away now, he joked about what slogan we should have for Swedish development cooperation. And he said, like Sweden in due time. And that's very much of the thinking in development from the beginning. Development was very much about looking at these countries that are underdeveloped. That was the phrase that was used. And meaning that they would, with our support, become like us. And of course, you cannot do that. And, and in, in that, you had this idea that some of these countries were inferior and some of them were superior. And not only in terms of economic development, social development, and culture, and all of these things. But what we have come to realize more and more globally is that really 
all cultures are different, but it's very difficult to, in many cases, to speak about who is developed and who is not developed. And the, one of the big things that is lacking, and that was obvious from the very beginning, lacking of knowledge. And knowledge transfer was something that was seen as something very simple. We either sent teachers or people that could teach the local people to drill for wells or all of the things. We took people back from Cambodia, from Tanzania, old countries, back to our Western countries, sent them to training institutions or schools or universities. So they would then be coming back with the real knowledge, helping them to become better, become developed. And this is, as I said, this, uh, this view has changed a lot. And you can see it in, in the whole discussion that was around the Paris agenda in the early 2000s, Accra and Busan, that actually equality between different countries is seen as very different than it was before. And you can see very concretely how this, this former view was kind of devastating in some cases. A very practical example here from Cambodia in teaching how to read and write. The Cambodian script system is the Indian script system from the beginning, and there are many differences from Latin script, for example. One of the is that when you write, you do not make spaces between words. You write a whole sentence in one line. And that's the way you do it in, in the Indian script, and that's the way you do it in Cambodian, in Khmer. But in the 80s and 90s, there was a kind of global agreement among experts. When you are teaching students to learn to read, you go by the whole word. So instead of learning C-A-T, you learn the word cat in, as a single item and this was introduced here by foreign experts. And actually, because the expert knew they would develop, they had the knowledge. So in the end, the ministry here, they said, okay, that's probably the way we should do it. And this was simply devastating for us. And for 10 years, students had much bigger difficulties of learning to read than they had before in the old system, where you went from one letter before you actually started to read sentences. And, and then about uh, seven, eight years ago, Cambodia said, no, this doesn't work. We have to go back to our old system. And that's what they are doing now. They are doing that with a lot of support from organizations with early grade reading. So they actually moved back to a system they had before. And that means that all of a sudden, the young students are learning much more than they did before. So this is a very good example of how the global experts and the West can have a view on things that could work very well in their context, but doesn't work at all in another very different context. And that is then a good example of what I mean, that we have to look at what these organizations, countries, governments want to do. And some of these things might be something that we don't think they should be doing, and we will not fund it. But basically, we are not to come to tell them what to do. We are going to support the things we think are positive and they want to do. And this goes for organizations as well. And I think that's 
that's also actually a core of what the CEDA has been doing a lot with the support to organizations in the sense of giving them core support. You give money to a certain broad field of activities and for, for actually running the organization. Whereas many other organizations, they have much more of a project approach. So they want certain things to happen, and then you pay for the organization to deliver that particular part. Whereas SIDA in general has seen this as, uh, no, we have to make it possible for the organization to deliver on a much broader sense. Of course, we also support projects. This is a basic difference in approach to organizations and to development cooperation. And that is also been very much in line with the agenda from Paris Agenda and Osana and Accra. So then that is, a, from my point of view, one of the really positive parts of Swedish development cooperation. Very interesting. I mean, as you say, that core funding requires maybe more long-term investment. And part of that is just allowing for more time, allowing and funding a longer-term presence. In terms of measuring impact or thinking about impact, there's sometimes a tension between more short-term successes and more longer-term goals and plans for systemic change. But that not always being achieved in the time frame that's possible. In your work, when you think about impact or when you think about achievements or reaching certain landmarks, but it having taken maybe many years longer than had previously imagined or planned for, how do you kind of navigate that or think about that? Or what is your personal perspective on how social change or systemic change on a particular issue, institutional change, it requires a lot more time than we might normally think? You're absolutely right. This is one of the challenges for government organizations like CEDA or USAID or DFID, that the government and the ministries of finance and the general public and media, they want to see results. And they want to see results from the Swedish or US or British money, whatever. And then you, you want to have your flag on things and be able to say, okay, we, we supported this and then this was the result. This is actually, in most cases, very difficult to do. And as you say, social changes, changing behavior, Behavior changes take a long time. And it's very often a long process that moves slowly with a lot of assistance. And all of a sudden, things are looking different. You can see it in the West, how people talked about gays and lesbians and in Canada, in the US, in Sweden, with consistent work on this, with a lot of resistance. All of a sudden, in most of the Western countries, the general public and the legislation has changed completely. So most of the Western countries now, they have the same legislation for marriages between people from the same sex as heterosexuals. And so this is a very good example of how this change takes time, but it is possible to do. But on the other hand, when you are looking at the very complicated changes, like increased democratic processes and support to that. That's a very, very long process. And then you really have to work inside a culture, inside a society, inside the history of that society. That's 
one of the really difficult parts of coming from outside, importing into a country. And we have seen a devastating example where they actually tried to do that in military, also with a more kind of soft power means. And changing big systems like school systems also takes a long time. One of the things that we, and I think this is really a right thing, globally have seen child-centered teaching as an important part. Actually, looking at the different ways of learning, from root learning to activity-based learning to body-based learning, all of these things that are many labels, but basically learning based on the idea that the learner is interested in learning the things that we want them to learn and giving them the opportunity to learn with assistance. And root learning is the other opposite, where you actually have decided what you should learn and they should memorize it, basically. Not to understand it, but memorize it. But actually changing this way of looking at learning takes a long time. And in countries like here in Cambodia or in Tanzania, this has been a very difficult process Legal terms, the curricular terms, what you teach in a teacher training colleges is based on the idea of learner-centered teaching. But in reality, very little has changed in many cases. There is now here, it's moving very fast during the last five years, but it has taken almost 30 years to change this. But the new teachers coming out, they have a different way of looking at it. If you're working as an organization like CIDA, you have to have the confidence in actually working for a long time. And that means in almost all cases, if you enter into support, that you expect a change of way of thinking, behavioral changes in a broader sense and with a broader group, you really have to look at it in time-wise, 10, 15, 20 years. Whereas a lot of the thinking that's behind getting the flag and being able to tell that our money made this difference. That's very difficult then to actually get these things together. So that is a struggle for all development agencies, actually. To do what we know is needed, long-term investment. And what we know is to report back, okay, this is what happened for our money. This is really a big challenge for all of us, it is. Mm-hmm. As you say, it's a big challenge for different actors, different organizations. But when it comes to working in partnerships with governments, whether it's the government of the country you're in or also other regional governments, partner governments, what have been your experiences with trying to establish dialogue or agreement and just working together on an issue, despite perhaps the political context, despite the political agenda of the different partnership members, the different countries. Sometimes it's hard to maybe find unity or, you know, bring together people who have maybe different competing priorities. So when it comes to that more diplomatic side of the work and working with other countries and overcoming any of the political challenges. What have been your experiences or what are your thoughts in terms of how to approach that? This is a difficult question and needs a delicate answer. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Many countries we work in are not democratic in the sense we would like them to be. Autocratic or in different senses, in different scales, the gray scale is huge in this sense. 
And sometimes this is very difficult. And another part which is related to this is that in many of these countries, not least here in Southeast Asia and in Cambodia, is actually the corruption. Corruption is a huge thing and, and devastating for all movement forwards and all movement of accountability, transparency, and the whole idea of democratic processes. And, and that makes it sometimes completely impossible to work on certain issues. Specifically, where there is a lot of money involved, where the elite is getting a lot of money and they are afraid that that money will disappear from their pocket. So, in certain cases, you are not simply as an agent of democratic ideas, you are not possible to work on these areas. But on the other hand, in countries like Cambodia, you have a lot of good people and you actually have organizations that are very positive and are really struggling to work toward the same ideas that we are doing. And here, you actually have the education system has been a kind of island of opportunities and, and positivism in that sense. Not only the current leadership, which is extremely positive in this sense, but actually for a very long time. And uh, that is also because we have, we have and, and we meaning the whole development group here, has been working on this issue for a very long time. And because we have been here for a very long time and working consistently, not being too much of coming in and with, with telling them what to do, but actually seeing them as partners and they see us as partners. So we have been able to work closely with them. And, and then, as I say, some things are easier. One example is comprehensive sexual education sexuality education, that was not a struggle to do it here. And that is actually implemented in schools. But actually then to change the behavior and how teachers, uh, how they work with gender lenses in schools is much more difficult. So actually there is a gap between, in many, many cases, between actually you write in the document, write in the policies, and even write in, in a very concrete curricula and, and the syllabus. That's one thing, and that we have been able to do very successfully, I would say, in many of these fields I've been working in here, and also in countries like in Laos and really in Bangladesh as well. But when it comes to the concrete changes, it takes a much longer time, actually, to, to get the whole system to take on board this and the individuals that are working to take on board this. But this is really a challenge, working with governments and working, specifically working with governments. But then you also do have organizations that might be doing good work in one way, but not doing good work in other ways. But getting this balance right is very, very difficult. And specifically, if as we are really very much working on, as a general idea, the basis of Swedish development cooperation supporting democratic processes, supporting an increased respect to human rights. All these issues are then difficult in practice in many, many, many of these countries. And sometimes you see uh, this has been moving forward, but sometimes then it all goes back. Like you're seeing, for example, in Tanzania during the last few years. Tanzania has been moving very much forward. Slowly, slowly, but then moving in the right direction. But all of a sudden, it really reversed. 
well, you see it also in the West. You see it in countries with Hungary and, and in the US and other places. So this is a work that is never ending. And then that is, you have to be able to move between different aspects of it. And there is no right or wrong, and there is no solution that works in all cases. You have to go case by case. But one of the important and most important aspects of it is actually to, to work in that way. So these organizations, the people in this organization trust you. You are here to support them and you will be here for a long time to support them. And you are not coming in with the money and working for three years and telling them what to do. And then you are leaving and you are very unhappy because they didn't really do what you wanted them to do and so on. So actually building this trust is really a key for the success. Mm-hmm. You mentioned building trust and that taking time. In some cases, in organizations where there is kind of a turnover of international staff, where new staff come and go every few years, sometimes there is a kind of loss of institutional memory. So perhaps there was a project or a partnership and new staff come in and it gets lost or people don't know about it. Or even if there's reports written about the lessons learned from it, the new staff perhaps don't read that. You know, so there's sometimes a loss of information, loss of institutional memory, and that sometimes harms the work that is done or doesn't make it as efficient or it doesn't build on it. Have you experienced that yourself? not only perhaps in CEDA, but seen it in other organizations? And how have you been able to kind of navigate that change in staffing while still trying to maintain the trust and the relationships that you have built already? Well, this is, this is really one of, the, one of the key issues. I have very good relations with people in the Ministry of Education, youth and sports here in Cambodia. And once I was traveling with one of the secretaries of state, who is then responsible, mainly responsible for the cooperation with foreign development partners coming in. And he told me that one of the big challenges, maybe the biggest challenges in working with these foreigners, you have people coming in from Stockholm or Washington or Brussels. They come from headquarters of these organizations. They represent a lot of money. They have been studying Cambodia on distance. They may, may have been working in headquarters. They have been working in other countries. And then he said, so they come to me and they say, so this is the problem of education in Cambodia. And this is a solution. And we have the money. And then three years later, they come back to me. And then they said, you know what? I didn't understand what the problem really was. So I didn't have really the, the solution to the problem. And then a new one comes in. <laughs> so this is, this is really a big challenge. This is a big challenge for our partners in these countries. This is a big, big challenge for, for all, these, all these positive ministries. It's less of a problem working with other foreign organizations that are a part there. But you really see that people come on a three, four, five-year contract and then they leave. It takes you at least a year to understand the context. It takes you another year actually to get into, so what can we then work in? And then third year, you actually can start really to work on it. And then you leave and go somewhere else. So this is really a big, big 
challenge. And as you rightly said, the, the institutional memory is not in the report. We had a huge uh, cleanup day here at the embassy yesterday. And we're selecting out and throwing out a lot of reports that have been having for five years, 10 years, and nobody has been reading. And I was in a discussion with another one of our partners that we have been supporting for a very long time. We financed a midterm review with them five years back. And now we were talking about, okay, let's revisit this uh, midterm review and see what actually has happened. Because nobody has been reading it since we, it came out and we have meetings and seminars around it and so on and so forth. So, so a lot of that work, the reporting work, is not really benefiting institutional members. But on the other hand, all these organizations like CEDA, like DIFID, like uh, the EU delegation, they are based on that, that you have so experts that are coming and they are not supposed to and couldn't stay on forever in a country. And then you need to have the local staff to carry on the institutional memory. And in the organizations I work with here, like UNICEF, you really have very very good local stuff that really are the institutional memory. And then for the development partners work with the ministry, the institutional memory really lies with the ministry and less with specifically with the foreigners coming in. We have more of the kind of theoretical view on things that we try to put them into the local context. So we are really depending on, on our local staff and our local partners. Speaking of national staff or local partners and the great work that they do in some organizations, there is really a notable difference between the way international colleagues are treated versus national colleagues, both maybe at an organizational level or individual level, depending on the organization or context. But what have been your experiences with maybe trying to overcome this or address this? And not necessarily as CEDA, but just as a sector or generally. Have you seen any improvements in terms of this difference in the way that national staff versus international staff are treated? Basically, no. I have not seen an improvement. Personally, I think this, this is a very problematic thing for me personally because as I, as I say we are really depending on our local staff and local partners and only looking at the the salary scales completely different you have all other things like the possibility of moving up into in the organization for example if you are working in an embassy like we here if you're a local staff there are very very few steps up to the ceiling uh, whereas if you are working as a foreigner in, in this kind of organizations, well, you move somewhere else and you move up in the system. We have a few examples of local staff that have been able to move from being employed as local staff. And in that sense, you always looked upon something of an assistant to the foreign expert. But these have been able to move up and now are actually employed as international staff. And that's really great. And they are here. They have institutional memory. They have memory of working on these different projects with different partners, different ministries for a very long time. So they have actually, in, 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 to a large extent, been my source of knowledge. And my, my teachers in how to work in Cambodia and what works in Cambodia and the challenges of working in Cambodia. But 
I can't. I cannot see any solution for in general. Actually, I, I don't know if there is an solution because the international development cooperation is really built on this. This is built on. We have a thin layer of foreigners that are moving between countries, moving between the home countries and different partner countries, or in this and so the multilaterals who are moving just between countries, like Tanzania and Cambodia, and then you have the big part of the organization is local staff. And this is the way this is created. So there is really a very big gap between this. And and I, to be honest, I don't know how we could solve this, but we should do. Mm -hmm. Yes, but speaking of one of the aspects of kind of the work environment or work culture, one of the aspects is good leadership. And you yourself have been in positions of leadership for many years now. And also earlier, we were touching on the importance of having committed leadership in terms of the government partners. But when you think about the sector and the development work, what do you think are some of the characteristics that make a good leader and that really help to drive projects forward or lead change in terms of development work? One of the things I've learned a lot from was two reports that the McKinsey made about 10 years ago. One was about they were looking at 10 systems that always come on, out on top in international comparisons, and the other ones were 20 different systems that have been moving very fast. And there were some of the things they found that were very fundamental that were throughout all of the systems. One is actually that it's difficult to become a teacher, and many people wanted to become a teacher. That was independent of actually the salary scales. And the other was the leadership, and the leadership in schools and in the system. And there were two main points in it. One was actually staying there for a long time. If you come in with a reform agenda and you stay there for one term, like three or four years, and then you leave, not much happens in reality. So for all of these systems, you had to leave with ministers, the reformed ministers that were staying there for at least 10 years. That's one of the things, staying there for a long time and then being consistent in that these things have to change and we have to change them, not getting new things in all the time and all that. So time perspective is important and being consistent. And the other thing is communication, because leadership is really dependent on communication. Because if you don't get the people with you, if you are a school leader and you don't get the teachers with you, well, nothing really will happen. And the same thing is goes for systems like education system. If the minister is not able, he's coming in with a reform agenda, but if he's not able to communicate the vision and the reform agenda and get the people with them, then not much will happen. You will always have resistance to reforms, but without actually really addressing the issue of communication, you are not really addressing the resistance and you're not really changing it. You're not getting these people on board because in the end, you have to have the people on board that are going to implement your reform. So it is really extremely important, the leadership. And the leadership is not only having good ideas. It's very, very much on, on this issue of communication. How do you get the people to actually understand what you want? 
how do you get them to understand that they will benefit from these changes and it's not a threat to them? So the leadership really is a core. Mm-hmm. Also moving back to more the education sector work of the conversation, one part of the activities that you've been involved with in Cambodia in terms of the education sector is private-public partnerships in the education space. Could you speak to us a bit about that work and also maybe some of the ethical considerations when it comes to working with the private sector? Okay, so basically, I'm very critical of private schools. I think general education is a public good, and general education is the responsibility of governments of any given country. And it is a part of that responsibility is to provide good education to everybody. And the private schools are, in most cases, contrary to that, because you are providing education, in some cases, very good education, to the people that are able to pay themselves. So in general education, I don't I don't see really in, in the countries I've been working in, I don't see really a, a place for private activity or public private sectors. Whereas when and that's what I've been working with, whereas when it comes to skills training, to the post-general education, post-basic education, when you actually are starting to train young people for work, for the life of work, for the world of work, then you need to cooperate with the employers. If you are setting up a system of TVET or skills development that's only done with the government money and the government structure, and then you are aiming for these young people to get in three years' time, they will start to work in something that is not uh, in line with what they're studying. This was one of the things that SIDA and others did a lot in the 70s. We put a lot of money into building schools, for example, in Tanzania, with training, technical training, vocational training. But when they came out from there, they were well-educated, but there were no jobs. What we have been supporting here is actually, if you're looking at the emerging sectors like the IT business, which is really has been growing here, then it's a business that grows very fast. If you're producing computers or anything around that applications, you need to move very fast and you need to have new equipment and all these things. And you only can provide that in in the sector that's operating. The, The government will never be able to actually follow in that fast pace that you need to do that. And what we have been supporting specifically is within the tourism sector, where you have, on one hand here, you have NGOs doing really good work with very poor people, with the most vulnerable people, giving them a kind of basic training in the hospitality sector. But if you are looking at moving up into the value chain, you need to really cooperate with the business. You need to work with hotels, with the restaurants, and so on. Because they are the ones that are able to, first of all, to tell you what kind of knowledge these young employees need to have when they come out of training. And on the other hand, they can provide the -the on-the-spot training, on-the-work training. So that's our support has been to actually within that TVET skills training sector, where you need this very, very close cooperation. 
But in general education, mm -hmm. no, that's not what we have been working on because you do have a lot of ethical issues around that. Who can pay for, for that? And you can see it in many, many countries, even here. That happens. You are really living out the most vulnerable part of the population. And that's the core of what CEDA is working on, supporting the vulnerable the poor people to be able to make their own life better. So there are lots of issues around private schools and private sector involvement in general education. But we have taken the stand on, on that. No, we are not supporting that. I see. Speaking of the most vulnerable people and the idea of leaving no one behind and always making sure that programs also address the needs of the most vulnerable, not only in the education system, but more broadly speaking, what have you found that over the years has really worked in terms of maybe supporting that sector of society or to improve the lives of the most vulnerable, the most disadvantaged? What have you found to be perhaps ways in which that has been achieved successfully? Knowledge is one of these key things. Not schooling. Schooling and knowledge is not the same thing. In many countries, in Southeast Asia is a good case in that sense, in Cambodia, Laos, for example. Malnutrition. Malnutrition is a very, very big thing here. And it affects young people and children and newborns because it is something that you carry with you from the first thousand days and the first five years and so on and so forth. It has a very huge impact on your possibilities to have a good life, your, your mental abilities, all these things. And the malnutrition here is not because you lack money. It's very much based on the lack of knowledge of nutrition. And that is something that has been moving UNICEF and others have been working very hard to try to provide this information about what you should give your kids to eat. And that is also back to the challenges of changing behavior because it's very easy to tell people what they should do. But actually changing their mindset is much more difficult. And that's back to, so you can tell them kind of uh, on the surface what they should be doing. But if they don't understand what nutrition is, then that's very much back to the issue of biology and all these things. So you need kind of basic understanding. And that basic understanding of a lot of these things, that includes a bit of chemistry and a bit of physics and all these things, you have to provide that through school. That's the easiest way to do that, to provide that knowledge. So knowledge is really a basic, basic thing. You have also seen schooling and knowledge playing a big role in the aspect of gender because women in particular, young girls and girls in particular, have been in many societies really the biggest part of the vulnerable group. They are in most societies majority of the population, but they have been seen as second-class citizens and all these things. But getting more and more girls into school, you see that the girls are getting confidence that they didn't have before as individuals and groups. You see that here in Cambodia very clearly, how young girls are taking much more space. They are entrepreneurs, they are moving up in the government system with huge resistance, but they are still moving up. They are moving into the universities, they are getting better grades and so on and so forth. 
So actually that self-esteem that comes from knowledge and having the knowledge and having gone through formal systems, which is also important in that sense, that has been a big way forward, has been very positive. And then the thing is actually not giving people fish, but teaching them how to fish. And that's easy to say, but in many cases difficult to do. So the other part of it is actually assisting people to become entrepreneurs and assisting, for example, poor farmers to become better farmers. And that is a delicate balance in that because we can see it in microloans. Microfinance loans are in many cases a great thing and has been helping a lot of people, but it can be a big trap that you're actually getting into a great depth of then means that you are not getting better life, but quite the opposite. So it is easy to say, but not that easy to actually do. But supporting, for example, supporting cooperatives for farmers has been a way forward in many cases. But actually, these are the two things, the self-esteem, knowledge, and assisting people to slowly, slowly become better in economic terms. Because they are better at creating things better at producing things, better at selling things and all all these aspects. Speaking about the economic system and microbones, from the perspective of a donor agency, when you think about the financial system that exists within the international development sector and the way in which funding is given, the structure, when you think about it from your perspective as a donor, what do you think can be improved or what do you think should be done to maybe make it either more effective or more accessible? I know that organizations and individuals, they have their own struggles with it, but I'm sure from the donor agency side, there's kind of maybe a a different unique perspective. So you have big need for loans, for example, like government needs a loan and then you have the big banks and and that's one discussion you need to have loans for upcoming industries for example ICT business is one example of it and you need to have an unfurred structure for for the poor people and the this last one is the trickiest one actually to create a system where you actually are giving people money or they, you are loaning people money because giving them money is not always the best thing to do. Because you need to actually have the responsibility. You are getting the money and you invest it wisely. And one of the big challenges for the microfinance system has been, in many cases, like in Bangladesh and like here, and it's, Cambodia is actually an extreme example of it. It's been extremely easy to get these loans. And that has been partly or to a large extent because it's been rather easy to set up microfinance institutions. And because it's been easy to set them up and easy to get these loans, then it's easy to, to get a new loan to repay the old loan. So in many cases, what they've seen in studies here, the poor people can have three, four different levels of loan in different microfinance institutions. And, and that makes it really a trap for them because they cannot get out of it because they are getting a new loan to pay the old loan. And this is really a tricky, tricky, tricky thing to do because you need to do it very much within the legal frame of how this looks in a particular country, what legal framework it is, 
what kind of inspection system there is. In a country like Cambodia, part of that is actually back to the issue of corruption. Because, of course, if you have a lot of money and you want to keep the money, you are able to or willing to pay the ones that should be inspecting you and seeing that the rules are followed. So that is an area that is really, really very difficult to be active in. Mm-hmm. I see. There's not really easy solutions, of course, to any of these questions. But I also want to switch gears a bit and ask you about your commitment and your interest in the arts and culture sector and how that relates to development and social and economic development and activities. Could you tell us about your thoughts on the role of the arts in society and in development and in growth in different ways? Maybe some best practices in terms of using the arts maybe to promote human rights or to promote democratic discussions or for for raising awareness for all these different types of possible activities. Well, art and culture are such a big part of life, a big part of any society, really. There are so many aspects of it. But one of these things that is related to your question actually is what is called the public space. And in many countries, public space is very narrow. The possibility actually to discuss things, discuss specifically difficult things and challenging things is in many cases very, very narrow. And if you have a strong NGO sector and human rights activists, which is absolutely needed, then that can be very often seen by the government as threatening them because it's seen as politically threatening. And then one way of, of getting around that is actually working through, through expressions that are not seen as, as, in that sense, politically threatening. We have seen it in Europe, in Canada, in the U.S., where you can use literature, or you can use songs, the protest songs in the 60s in the Vietnam War is an example of that. Uh, how you can actually bring forward ideas and discussions that can sometimes have to be more or less hidden or subtle, but are still there, or sometimes they can be very frank. But that is a very important part of this, how to use cultural expressions within the public space, actually the public discussion. And I, I can see it here that that is a growing aspect of culture. But culture is not only that. Culture is much more of it. Culture is much about self-esteem. Culture is something of, of feel good. Music makes, makes you feel good, but music can also have a social aspect of it. One part doesn't say that the other part is not important. But if you are only supporting art and culture because you think it's politically important, then it becomes that, it becomes propaganda. So you really need to have this balance in it. Art and culture has to have a life of its own because it's important for people, for society. But at the same time, it can be used and is used in the public dialogue, public discussion. So my engagement in culture is actually based foremost on actually, I I see the importance of art as art and I see the importance of music as music. But I also see the importance of these expressions to discuss, for example, the role of women. That is something that's popping up very often in Cambodia. How, how can women dress? How can women behave on stage? 
how can you describe women in movies? That is an important part of the discussion about it. These movies are not around gender ideas, basically, but being a cultural expression, they bring forward these things. And then it is important to be proud of yourself, to be proud of your society. And then culture plays a huge role to be able to say, I'm proud because the, the music in Cambodia is great. And I'm proud because the art in Cambodia is great. And that is a, that's another part of it, which is, a, which is related to what we started to talk about, the idea from the very beginning of the development cooperation that some countries will develop and other countries will not develop. So very often in the beginning and still is, is the scene that culture in the countries like Cambodia is not developed. They have to become closer to the Western culture, which is completely not acceptable. So you need to have this, all, all these aspects in, in your mind when you are talking about culture and art and development cooperation. As you say, so many different aspects. When it comes to global north, global south partnerships in the arts and culture sector, are there activities and uh, exchanges happening perhaps in Cambodia between Swedish artists and Cambodian artists? It's coming. And globally, it has been that the artists coming from what was before called the developing world, they are coming bigger and bigger names on the international scene. You see it in the international biennial. Here you are getting more and more of the new Cambodian artists. They are getting invitations to these kind of big international dance festivals, not because they are exotic Cambodians, because they are great performers, they are great artists. They are Cambodian, they are Cambodian dancers, but they are this combination of being great artists and being great Cambodian artists. And you are seeing that in many, many more aspects. You have artists, visual artists like Leanne Sekon, that is also invited to take part in international biennials and having exhibitions in London and New York. So this, is, this has been growing. This has been growing in Cambodia very fast during the last 10 years, specifically last five years. I can see really a big change in this. And that is back to that the new artists, the upcoming artists, they feel confident. Their, their self-esteem is really growing because they see their compatriots, other artists, they are gaining this kind of international recognition. It's growing, it's really growing. And it's a very, very positive part of the development of Cambodia, as I can see it. We mentioned earlier that now in the time of the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of things are, are changing in different ways. Uh, of course, in the school system, we see either a shutdown of schools or homeschooling or online learning. Do you have maybe some general thoughts when it comes to development cooperation in this time of coronavirus now? Uh, well, as you said, this is a global crisis and this is a local crisis as well. And that's specific for all countries because of how the economy is looking. So here you have had two industries that have been exporting. That so much of the of the GPT has been coming from the textile industry, garment sector, and from the tourism. Tourism is simply dead, and you have thousands and thousands and thousands of people here that have been engaged in working in tourism at all level, working. As two guys working in the, the restaurants, that is completely dead. And that will not come back within next year, two years, three years. 
So you, you really have to rethink that. So what are these people going to do? How will their livelihood look? You have the garment sector here, so really the big sector. There's only 16 million inhabitants in Cambodia, and around 1 million have been directly working in the garment sector. So you can see that there are at least 3 million people that are depending on that sector. Due to, the first of all, the lack of, it was difficult to getting the raw material from outside of China from India here. So they were not producing. Then you have the next step. The buyers are not buying in the West. So a lot of these people, maybe 150, 200,000 of them are out of work already. Maybe 1 million will be out of work within the end of this year. So that's another part of it. It's another sector that really needs to be rethought. Do we think that the tourism industry will come back as it was? Well, do we foresee that the government sector will be coming back the same way it was before? Okay, if it is, if we think it is, then we can prepare for that. If we think it's not, then we really have to think differently. So what are the industries that will be replacing? What are the workplaces that will be replacing this? And it's not only in Cambodia, it's globally. Globally, this is a catastrophe for huge sectors. And, and that means also that the, the development agencies have to rethink. We are doing a lot of work and a lot of thinking together with all the partners here in Cambodia and globally with social security, because that is the first step to be able to assist these people that are losing their income. So simply that they can buy food. The next step has to be, okay, so instead of only seeing to that they get cash in hand, how can we help them to create new industries, create new jobs? And we have not got there yet, but that is really the challenge for the development cooperation. Business is not as usual, and business will not be as usual for the coming years. Right. As you say, business is not as usual and it won't be for coming years. I think that's very well put. Magnus, thank you so much for everything you've shared. It's been really, really wonderful to hear your thoughts and your reflections. Thank you very much for having me. As I said, working in development cooperation, working as a foreign expert is so rewarding. And most rewarding things is that you meet and get to know and get to be friends with people coming from very different cultures, very different backgrounds, and enrich you and enjoy being with you. And, and that's really one of the most beautiful parts of being engaged in this business personally. Then it's also such a rewarding things to see, as I'm seeing in Cambodia, that what we are supporting and that what I am being engaging is actually making the world a bit better, a bit better. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and we really appreciate your time and all your thoughts. There's so much to think about and to reflect on. So thank you so much. Thank you also to our listeners. To keep up with our latest episodes, you can listen to us on your preferred podcast provider, and follow us on social media where you can join in on the conversation. If you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask any future guests, please feel free to email them to us. I look forward to continuing similar conversations with you all next time. Until then, take care. <laughs>